there's a societal impetus for commodities going lower, which is we use commodities. So if the price of oil goes to 100 bucks or 200 bucks, our policymakers will move heaven and earth to make the price of oil go back down. They won't do that with the stock market. It's the opposite with the stock market. If the stock market's too low, they'll move heaven and earth to make it go back up. And so in, in some sense, asset prices are determined by what society needs. And I think the same incentive match in a long term is going to play out with these L1s. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share something that Blockworks has been cooking up for these last couple of months. March of this coming year in London, Blockworks is hosting DAS London, the largest institutionally focused conference in all of crypto. Goldman, JP Morgan, Point72, all in one room so you can know what the big money is doing. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. It'll take you right over to the homepage and use Bell20 for 20% off. I will see you in sunny London town in March. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, Nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. First of the new year, got me and your boy Miles holding it down. Oh. Miles, how's the break, buddy? Great. Got some uh, got some sun with the family down in Florida. Um, you know, acted like a retiree for a few days, which is great. The usual, yeah. the pickleball, some golf. Um, yeah, little birdie but, uh, told me you tried to swing out of your shoes. I did really did. wanted to get a piece of it on one uh, of those drives I was reminded that i'm like very old and uh then then actually felt like a retiree for about three days with the uh, damage i did to my back but it's all right we're back uh back on the horse feeling good uh so i also uh was reminded of my i went out to montana i tried to ski for a couple days didn't do my warm-up stretches before Nope, um never do yeah uh, pulled pulled the old back was uh was was uh was walking very gingerly for about a week um so well, yeah it's a worthy effort you know uh, wor- it was yeah good, it was a good shot yeah man it really sneaks up on you the, the old uh talking like we're 80 years old here but uh but yeah the it's you know it's the sitting all the time the sitting does not help you uh, and every time i see a pt they're like do you sit a lot i'm like yeah I'm required to for my job, you know, <laughs> like, like, well, don't sit so much. It's like, okay, cool. I'll just like figure out. <laughs> I have to do exactly. that. Um, exactly. Uh, well, it's surprising in a stock since we both had back problems for the last 10 years, but anyway, good point. Yeah. I'm yeah. Sure, sure. The audience wants to hear more about this. Exactly. Uh, let, let's jump into it. I think the, the first topic that I want to address with you happened, uh, I guess technically last week, but that's okay. I wanted to get your take on, Vitalik's most recent piece. So make Ethereum cypherpunk again. And I also wanted to get your take on, he released an updated version of the Ethereum roadmap. And I I think that's the one that actually makes more sense to focus on. A, because I got reminded of what that actually is. Uh, but B, I thought the reaction to it on Twitter was really telling. And maybe we can use this as an opportunity to dissect a little bit the current state and narrative of Ethereum. So 
why don't we start with this roadmap and just to give folks an idea here, I'll actually share my screen. I've got it pulled up. But for those of you who might not have this right off the top of your dome, uh, there are multiple stages to the Ethereum endgame. Vitalik's actually been posting this at least since last year and just sort of had a, a, a minor a minor update um, to us. So the the I guess it's six stages is the merge, right? Which is the merge, uh, the transition from proof of work to proof of stake consensus. The surge, which is the goal uh, to scale to 100,000 transaction per second beyond on rollups. Um, then is the scourge. So that's mitigate centralization concerns in Ethereum, you know, particularly around MEV, liquid staking, uh, that sort of thing. The verge, which is uh, verifying blocks should be extremely easy. Uh, the purge, which is to simplify, um, uh, basically reduce technical debt and uh, I guess state growth, things like that. Uh, and then the splurge is just fix everything else. So a um, little bit of a cop out right at the end there. But uh, sure. other than that, a, an extremely detailed roadmap. I actually, as we were looking at this before, I, I actually see, I guess from Vitalik's standpoint, we're, we're at the verge um, where we're working on making proofs and verification extremely easy. But, you know, if I just, if I just sum this up and I have a lot of empathy here because uh, for six years, I've been getting the feedback at Blockworks that we don't have a clear vision. <laughs> so uh, I think we do. Uh, it's, it's clear in my head, but uh, I understand how difficult it is actually not just one year out or two years out to describe what you're going to do, but in a cohesive detailed enough, but also simple and easy to understand, you know, inspiring way, describe what you're doing on a five to 10 year basis. If you haven't tried to do that to a group full of more than 10 people, it is a daunting task. Yeah. So I have a lot of empathy for the guy to just put this out there. Um, but it was interesting to see the split because there were a lot of people and definitely historically when Vitalik has said basically anything, you know, it's met with sort of adulation and, yeah, oh my gosh, this is so great. And there was definitely some of that, but there's definitely some pushback, I would say, on the complexity and some people kind of bemoaning, A, this stuff feels still very far out, or B, this just feels very technical, or it didn't really have the parts that I really cared about, which is reducing gas costs or whatever it is. So, you know, Miles, what did you kind of think about this, this update and then just the reaction? to it yeah i think the order that these two were put out was that the blog post was put out first and then the roadmap came out second um yeah i almost wish it was reversed because i think people have like a pretty uh you know understandable knee-jerk reaction to looking at something this complex and you know just like it, it's so daunting given how early we are in that roadmap um and i think the post speaks to a lot of the values that Vitalik is saying, hey, this is like what justifies the complexity of this roadmap. Like if we actually care about these, you know, values like we say we do, this is kind of rationalizing this roadmap where, you know, if you just compare to something like Solana, you know, it's much more like <laughs> I would I would say it's not like they don't share the same values, but it's much more straightforward roadmap. It's much more, you know, you understand what they're optimizing for. You understand that, like, there is going to be issues along the way, and we're just going to tackle them as we go. Um, so I would, I would say that first. And then I guess second is, uh, you know, I think I think a lot of the, uh, the pushback 
that we heard on it. Um, it's kind of a, a reflection of the current state of um, of Ethereum and, and this awkward stage of where it is in its longer term roadmap. Um, we're at the stage where we're beginning to see, you know, I guess the key pieces of infrastructure that are going to fulfill this roadmap, whether that's, you know, rollups themselves or ZKPs um, and lots of other items that were listed on here, but they're not the best version of themselves. And frankly, they're worse in many ways than much more, you know, I would say like uh, straightforward um, platforms, like like what you can get on a, on a monolithic chain like Solana. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do think that, you know, Ethereum will be fine. I don't necessarily think that this roadmap is going to play out the way it looks right now. Um, and I do think Ethereum should take more of a, maybe a listen to the apps building on their uh, chain and, and iterate, you know, this roadmap, refine it based off some of that feedback. Um, Sometimes I do feel like there is a little bit too much of a, a, a disconnect between, you know, the, the objectives of the core developers roadmap versus what you know, I think, you know, the customers, okay, the builders of Ethereum really want. Um, and sometimes with any business, right, you, your customers will tell you they want something and you know, the bottom of your heart, like that is not the right thing to build and that's okay. But I still think that there's probably needs to be more of that uh incorporated here um so yeah i'll pause there but curious to hear your thoughts i agree with that and it's actually one of the simplest things that people tell you all the time that i don't fundamentally believe is true with a little bit of nuance you obviously have to talk to your customers but especially a if you're really early stages and you don't have any customers to ask you've got to do it based on uh you know your own intuition and then b even with a small subset if you don't have your if you don't have something like product market fit or your perfect customer identified you're going to listen to a cacophony of voices uh that are often directly at odds with one another and you're not going to get any useful information anyway and even at the very highest levels uh, you know you've got quotes from these i don't even know if this is true but the this is the the ford quote you know if i gave people what they wanted i'd have faster horses. And Steve Jobs certainly didn't listen to anyone. That all came directly from his his mind. Now, we can't all be Steve Jobs, but I think there's an element of of listening here. And um, yeah, I think that hasn't been done as well as it could have. On the other hand, though, I think where I have to defend Ethereum and Vitalik here is A, just my, my personal empathy of the difficulty of sharing long-term visions in a cohesive way, but B, because I think what we've seen over the course of the last a certainly year is a convergence in the architecture of various blockchains and stuff that looked really distinct even a year or two ago is now starting to look very similar today so that could be something like cosmos and ethereum we've talked about it ad nauseum almost on this podcast about very similar visions just starting from different points but even something like solana i think and Solana is getting a lot of the benefit of, hey, we're the underdog now and we've got this much simpler narrative of going fast, but they're probably going to have to deal with this stuff eventually as well. Uh, you know, I listed it in one of the predictions for this year, but I think eventually Solana is going to get L2s as well. And it's not going to be a cost thing. It's going to be a sovereignty thing that Cosmos has been pretty directly right on in the beginning. So, you know, a lot of these architectures are heading towards the same way. And maybe some of the criticism that Ethereum is facing right now is you know, maybe there's an element of they're getting squeezed, but maybe they're just the furthest along. And this is something that basically every 
L1 is going to have to deal with at some point. Yeah, I no, I totally agree. Um, I do think so. It, it, it's interesting. I, I don't know. Thinking we were chatting about this earlier. Um, it does feel like Ethereum's trying to thread the needle between, uh, I, I guess, offering a lot of what Bitcoin does um, at its base layer and with its you know native asset and ETH um, and the qualities that those represent as well as the plurality that Cosmos offers um, without a lot of the pain, right? And I think that that's a super compelling vision if they can pull it off. Um, what does the role of like Ethereum L1 become in that world? Uh, and, and what does it need to be? I think there's, that's where there is some difference of opinion um, because just expecting there to be like zero activity on Ethereum L1 but also expecting ETH to have the moneyness of Bitcoin. I, I'm not sure you can have both of those things. Um, it would be interesting though, we were also chatting about this before. I mean, what if Ethereum L1 is just used for staking and restaking and pro posting proofs basically as a bulletin board? Um, that might be a way to get there. Uh, but I don't think that that is the vision of the core devs that are you know, creating these roadmaps. Um, in fact, I think, you know, we've heard many times how concerned they are about like restaking um, and, you know, putting more stress on the social, on the consensus layer, right? Yeah, oh, man, there's so much to dig into here. Okay, so on the one hand, I think I'd break this discussion into two different parts, which is does the Ethereum as money idea and meme ultimately end up making sense? And then there's the concept of, okay, let's just ignore if it's money, if it's a commodity, if it's just a, an operating system, a new model for an operating system, where is going to be the demand to buy Ethereum? Um, and, and is a settlement for rollups, like, is that ultimately sufficient? Let's talk about the first one first. I think people talk past each other quite a bit on this. And this has always been the case within crypto. There are people that care about the money side of the use case. And then there's the people that are in it for the tech, unironically. And they they just talk right past one another. And you know what's funny about this, Miles? Because I know you're a little bit more in the tech camp and I find myself defending the monetary components of it to you. But then, you know, right on the other side, I will often be like, hey, guys, like maybe this ultrasound money means it was like a little too far and doesn't. I That was another one of my predictions this year. So I feel like I'm in the middle of this and I kind of see the merits of both a little bit. But I find it difficult because it's tough. I have this mental framework that maybe we can get a little bit more into, but maybe we are shifting towards something that looks more like multiple commodity monies, in which case, yeah, maybe you do have like Bitcoin and ETH and all of this stuff because Bitcoin has basically with no demand, right? We can see outside of ordinals, uh, transactions have been a one-way stream down, but people are still adopting it and it's the furthest along in its use case of money. That's a pretty strong data point. But on the other hand, maybe uh, just Bitcoin is the only money and the rest of these things are things that look like operating systems and it was silly to try to get squeezed. So I can kind of see both stand. But I think that's it's that talking past is is a lot of the confusion here. It is. And, and I think the, um, the, the folks that are most influential think that they can have their cake and eat it too. And I think mm. that's definitely a possibility. But if you're optimizing for you know, to be uh, a money, it's going to be, you're going to make very different decisions than if you're optimizing to be a development platform, right? Um, yeah. It's, 
if you are trying to prioritize the base asset and the money, then you're going to want to basically put constraints on what the L1 can do and also constrain anybody building on, you know, your platform to have to use your asset in some way um, and have that actually be significant in terms of value accrual uh, versus, you know, I think like a development platform doesn't necessarily even need a token whatsoever. Um, and if you can give ultimate sovereignty to all the builders on top, but as we've seen with Cosmos, you know, you go too far that direction. Um, I've just, as somebody who's been very active in Cosmos for a while, we could use a base layer money. That's kind of a, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, um, sort of deal. Um, at the same time, you know, I think trying to, I guess, pack everything into, um, one monolithic chain, I think, I, I do think Solana is going to like struggle a little bit at some point and they're going to figure out fees, but that's okay. They're like totally, yeah. they're going into this with eyes wide open of, yeah, we know this is not it. This is completely iterative. Um, but I think it is just even more difficult when uh, the further along the roadmap you go, the more success you go, that you have, the, the harder it is to, to make any of these um, decisions that may be optimizing for, for very different things um, because there's so much at stake, right? Um, and, and that's where Ethereum finds itself on top of being at just a generally like awkward stage of this roadmap. But yeah, I, I, I do think that there's, there's so much, you know, to come. I, I, I do think a big question of this is like, what is the role of Ethereum L1 um, in, in five years? And based off of that, we can kind of, you know, uh, have more informed decisions on, or at least opinions on, on some of these roadmap items. The rising tide lifts all boats is a very interesting and I think accurate way to phrase it. There, every once in a while, this debate will crop up about how gas is denominated in the native token, so Guay or Lamports or whatever. And people make the argument that when the token, the, there's a fundamental misincentive because as the price of the token goes up, it becomes more expensive for developers. However, I would argue that the best thing for developers is for the token to go up because token goes up leads to more people buying, more people moving on chain, more users for you as a developer. So whatever incremental cost you're incurring by the native, the price of the native token go up, I think you're making it back tenfold in the amount of new users. Yeah, it's like a mindshare type of type of deal. Of, absolutely. Um, though, if we are optimizing to have, you know, a base layer money that's used for lots of different purposes, um, that volatility at some point is not a great thing for the actual usage of it beyond, I would say, like, just, you know, like B2B use cases where like rollups need to need to hold some to post data. Um, yeah, that's, th I think this is the money versus like tech crypto debate surfaces itself every couple of years, especially as we get to major roadmap item, you know, decisions. Um, the original being kind of like the block space wars, I would say with, with Bitcoin. Um, and Ethereum's kind of having that moment too right now. I, don't think Solana will necessarily have as uh, dramatic of, of a debate, but they will um, eventually need to face some some tough decisions. I, I think I, I still like to your point. Think they will either have to deal with rollups or find other ways to satisfy um, apps that want to control more of their block space economics within the same monolithic chain. There are some interesting avenues there. Um, 
and of course they have to figure out their own fee market, you know, uh, dynamics. So I have a, a long-term theory that might satisfy or tie some of these paradoxes in. And one, one thing that, uh, one thing that I think you have to get comfortable with if you work in crypto full time is the presence of irrationality for like sustained periods of time. There was a pretty funny thing that was happening during yield farming. There was an, there was an irony where these uh, markets were behaving in a way that was very rational and irrational at the same time. So you really what you're doing with yield farming for a new protocol is you are issuing a ton of equity and what traditional efficient markets theory would tell you is that when you issue more equity, the price should go down. Of course, that's not what's happening. Um, if the price went way, way, way up. Um, and that was actually rational because you could have surmised as a, as a trader that when people yield farm, a ton of new users come and buy the token to yield farm, which makes the price go way up. And then there's a thing you can do. You can, you, you can contribute to a pool and farm and get rewards and but there's this very irrational and simultaneously rational thing that was happening. And then eventually what ended up happening is real rationality kicked in. Everyone dumped the tokens. And now most founders look back at that as sort of a, a mistake or something to be improved on. And I think the same thing is basically going on with L1 tokens, which is that right now you can make these logical arguments about long-term incentive mismatches. And I think there is a long-term incentive mismatch. But the best thing to happen is for you to have this sort of mimetic, narrative-driven, no cash flow, like very uh, difficult way to value sort of thing go up. You gain a lot of mind share, developers, builders, create a lot of wealth and have people build on it. But long term, so I think, and I think that's going to happen for the next like five years. I think the, the framework to keep in your mind is a commodity boom. And uh, because that's what these, I think most of these things are, digital commodities. But eventually, incentives will kick in. And that I think that point, you know, this is just like commodities in the real world. The reason commodities aren't a long-term buy or they tend to trend sideways or down is because there's a societal, Im there's a societal impetus for commodities going lower, which is we use commodities. So if the price of oil goes to 100 bucks or 200 bucks, our policymakers will move heaven and earth to make the price of oil go back down. They won't do that with the stock market. It's the opposite with the stock market. If the stock market's too low, they'll move heaven and earth to make it go back up. And so in, in some sense, asset prices are determined by what society needs. And I think the same incentive match in a long term is going to play out with these L1s. So we could argue that these things are commodities today and it would be good for the developers if they're lower, but they're going to continue to go higher. But eventually, once we get businesses that consume that block space, with product market fit, the leverage is going to change. The incentives are going to kick back in. And eventually the dApps will have the leverage at that point. And my guess at that point is that these L1s start to trade more like commodities. That's interesting. I think whether it's a dApp or whether it's an L1, um, this is a little bit more of a, a simple uh, take, but I think there's always a period where you know, you have a chance to be early. And what I mean by that is going all the way back to yield farming as a retail, you know, uh, participant, I would never be able to get to own anything that looks like equity um, of a private startup at maybe what was probably a series A, series B stage. And you add that with like 
a risk on sort of macro backdrop. Uh, and that's when you see like this speculative mania. I would like look at Gino right now too, right? Um, I don't think there's anybody doing DCF charts of, of Gito and, and saying that's why I'm like buying more or like not <laughs> selling my airdrop, right? It's just that I have the opportunity to get in at this stage and uh, it seems like we're back in terms of the market. Um, I'm probably going to make money by holding this for some period. And then when that risk return profile goes down, now we see, you know, projects even at the DAP level, um, again, just to get the commodity out of it, we maybe just focus on DAPs where yeah. you have Maker, Lido, DYDX. You look at the PLs and it's really, really impressive at this point. Um, it's like they've actually gotten to that stage and yet they're unfortunately being priced like, you know, a real asset. Like other people are looking at fundamentals. Um, and DYDX for, is, is, you know, offering it, it if you stake it. I think it's like 20% APY and pure USDC from protocol revenue alone. Um, and you haven't heard like anybody talk about that. Um, I think that's insane that we're now at the stage where these like, uh, there, there are a few projects that have kind of like crossed that chasm into the point where even a fundamental investor would see value there. Um, so that's not to say that like, it's like at a certain point where, you know, be, being early is kind of like you miss the window. Now, all of a sudden, all these emissions, these yield farming, the, the continuous airdrops looks like cost. Um, and I would, I would also just point out like there were some airdrops during the bear market. Uh, those guys just bled equity without any of the benefits for you know a year and a half sometimes, right? They just had yeah. the wrong timing. Um, whereas there were a lot of projects that said, ah, actually, it's probably not the right time to, you know, I guess pull that card. Um, and now the ROI per se of that, you know, um, I, ICO or, or you know, token launch is is an order of magnitude higher than those that, that just just purely from a timing perspective. Um, then unlike the assets longer term, to your point on the commodity side, the L1s, the assets that you actually need to use, um, that to me feels like a bit of a different animal. Um, I, I do do wonder at what point. You know, um, like you and I debate all the time whether L1s can have, should, can or should have PNLs, right? Um, and it's much more hazy. I, I, I will admit that, even though I might be on the side that, like, you could probably, you know, have a good understanding of the fundamentals um, if you're not, like, overly creative. Um, I do think that that's a much more interesting question, whether or not it actually detracts from the platform, like the volatility or, like, speculative nature of it does detract from the platform um yeah i'll pause there i don't know no it's you know it's it's we had this conversation today if i if i if you had to guess what percentage let's call it maker synthetics uniswap ave are off their all-time highs what do you think probably still pretty high at least 50 percent for all of them maybe 75 70 to 85 90 yeah all right i was the maker maker didn't get insane maker was like eight now it's at two okay yeah and that's probably the best one uniswap is at 40 yeah yeah and that's not that's not to say that those assets were ever worth those fdvs at the time though right 
um, and not to say that they will be repriced now that they're in a new stage of maturity and a new and you know. Um, okay, I have a I have a thought for you on the FDV. This is also something you and I have talked and puzzled about, and I don't <laughs> think we ever came to a super satisfying answer. So, one of the quirks of crypto as compo- as compared to just traditional equities like a private company is that you have a concept of market cap and FDV as just opposed to enterprise value that you'd have in a in a startup. And I think that FDV, first of all, I think it's a holdover from Bitcoin. You know, we need this many Bitcoin and this is the number until the heat death of the universe type thing. Uh, but I, I, I continue to say that inflation is absolutely a cost. But if you are getting in excess, like if you are getting a return in excess of what you're paying out inflation, it's a good deal. You should do it until you can't do that anymore. But one of the thing that's funny about a startup is like if I just asked you to do do the FTV of this startup, you'd be like, that doesn't make any that doesn't make any sense. It's infinite because you at various rounds, you reprice and issue equity. The FTV is infinite. You have this infinite pool. And it's just so funny optically that these early stage startups have basically been like, OK, here's this. Here's what we're issuing today, which is essentially a small funding round. We have this other pool, which we're going to use for other funding in the future. But the fact that it's just so there and visible reminds everyone that you can get dumped on. And everyone's like, oh, the FDV is real. But you're getting dumped on all the time if you're an early stage equity investor. It's called dilution. It's called raising around. And they're kind of the same thing if you squint at it. But optically, it feels very different in crypto. Totally. Yeah. I think it was a this great piece from Hasu and Money Supply from a while ago that talked about treasury assets as... Um, it's the closest equivalent um, is being like uh, authorized but unissued shares. Um, and I just think I, I'm not an expert by any means, but I just think the um, relative difference in terms of float to authorized but unissued shares is much lower or much like there's probably just a little bit of authorized but unissued shares than what we see with a lot of crypto projects where it's you know five percent of the supply is representing the market cap and the fdv is some insane number that no one knows you know what it would look like when those tokens are actually issued um i think it's i'm 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 completely with you i don't know if and when this is ever going to change but um there's only been really one major vote to issue new tokens through governance. And it was, uh, I think it was Yearn from a few years ago. Um, and that's this crazy, scary thing that shouldn't be that crazy and scary. Um, it shouldn't. No. It shouldn't. This it's whole space is <laughs> too focused on the supply and not focused enough on the demand. Again, I think a psychological holdover of, of yeah. Bitcoin. Yeah. Right. Okay. I, I wanted to I wanted to ask you about the Ethereum. So okay, let's let's take this from the perspective of um I, I would be probably on the side that it's you know slightly less appropriate to put a PL around Ethereum uh, because you were the one who gave me this framework actually. M- multiple different intersecting PLs of so the analogy would be oil. If you think about Ethereum as oil, oil itself doesn't have a PL, but you know. Uh, the Exxon certainly does, right? And whoever else is involved in that ecosystem, same thing with, and the intersecting PLs around Ethereum would be holders, stakers. If you think about like one of the narratives that has come out around Ethereum is Ethereum, very similar to Bitcoin. It's the settlement layer. So it would be, 
I think it would be interesting if you treat ETH like a commodity. Let's say I don't want to try to value it in a PL form. I want to value it. I want to look at it as a model of supply and demand in the same way that you might try to anticipate what the price of oil is going to do. I don't really know how you do that for oil. I would guess it's like, this is how much is coming out of the ground. This is how much OPEC holds on the supply side. And then on the demand side, it's like, I try to aggregate cars and jets and things like that. And you try to shake out where supply and demand is going to, is going to do. So like, let's do that for Ethereum. So for Ethereum on the demand side of the token, you've got whatever rollups are going to have to pay to Ethereum for settlement, which is not very much, right? Settlement is very cheap. There's whatever rollups are going to have to pay in terms of data availability, which we know is going to start to get outsourced to Celestia or EigenDA, which has an interesting restaking connection. There is the gas fees that get paid by users on layer one, which I think this was one of the criticisms of the roadmap for Vitalik. He removed something about reducing ETH costs. We know that they're trying to move, so we should expect that to go down. And then there's another one, which is restaking, uh, I would argue. Um, if, If restaking really takes off, it's incremental demand for people to buy Ethereum and then stake it on the chain, which has implications for the supply. So... Ultimately, we can say whatever we want. ETH is a, and then I guess there's the delta between, you know, the supply and demand versus, I guess the other reason why you hold ETH is because it's this store of value money type thing. So am I, am I missing something on the, on the demand side for the reason to buy ETH? Which, which do you think will be the most significant um, drivers on the demand side? How, how do you view that? Yeah, uh, it's a super good question. Um, and I've, I guess there's two ways to look at this. There's the sort of like commodity with those separate different PLs. Um, it's a, the marketplace sort of economics have always resonated with me um, as well, and and marketplaces also have three different PLs depending on you know whether you are the suppliers um, or whether you're you know one of the consumers on the other side um, or whether you're the marketplace itself taking a rake. Um, and I think that. A lot of those dynamics still apply here. Um, you know, I think it's, we can look at all those things that you just listed are true. Um, the bigger questions for me is, uh, you know, is there this Wagyu DA, Wagyu block space for something like token issuance or just really price insensitive users um, settling very large, like high value trades? I, again, I, think this migration off of L1 is going to take much longer and and maybe will never fully happen. Um, And that's just another demand driver to think about. Um, And then, yeah, the restaking side, I don't know where I would put that necessarily um, because see it as basically (laughs) one way to look at it is if you're, if you're like me and you look at um, let's just say like, because it's the cleanest self solo stakers right solo stakers to me are like the most clear-cut case where you could argue this is a service provider to ethereum as well as an ethereum holder but from the service provider side right they are literally performing a job and the only reason they're performing a job is because they're getting paid enough either through a combination of emissions and uh revenue share from the protocol either you know mev fees or or um just priority fees right and if they weren't getting that revenue, they would they would stop and the network would 
you know, if that was, if the network was just solo stakers, um, you know, the network would no longer run. Right. So that's why I consider that a cost, but it's almost like you're, you're looking at the supply side, which is this weird hybrid of, you know, service providers and, and actual like holders of whatever asset you could argue, like represents value, like, you know, is correlated to the value of the network. Um, and it's almost like it's repurposing a lot of the existing costs and a lot of the existing um, services that it's running for other networks. Um, and so I just think in a, some sense, yeah, I think it will drive the demand for Ethereum to a small extent, but it, it, in a lot of ways, it just kind of, I'm not sure there's going to be more demand for ETH necessarily, but there could be more demand for staking, um, which again, I, I don't think that changes the economics of ETH, right? It just dilutes the total yield that all of the supply side, um, you know, operators get if the staking ratio goes from what it is today to something well over 50%. Um, so I know I, we, we differ on a few of these points. No, 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 no. I actually, uh, I think, so the future that I think we both agree on here playing out is, and it's, it's funny because I, I don't think this is what the Ethereum Foundation wants to happen, but um, I think the future that ultimately ends up playing out is the stake rate goes much higher. 50, 60, it starts to look more like a traditional proof of stake chain. One of the funniest discrepancies is in between what like Solana or Cosmos might think of as the target stake rate because from their eyes they want the security higher stake rate means more people are staking you have more security whereas ethereum wants it lower and i think the reason they want it lower is because if you are paying more out to stakers if you're if you have more people staking you have to pay more out to stakers and you're favoring the stakers as compared to the holders of eth and you're i think diminishing some of its monetary properties but and lsts lsts just add a whole another like element to that you're right because right? now you're yes. competing you're you have something that can compete with liquid ETH from a moneyness and a utility standpoint. Um, you know, that actually is like the stated goal of Lido is to become as ubiquitous and, and as, you know, useful as ETH itself. Um, and there's mixed feelings on that. I mean, some people just see that as like an inevitability um, or some version of that is an inevitability uh, given just the incentives at play here, right? Yeah. There's a comparison to be made if people care about things like this, but it, I think it's directly relevant in between a country's currency market and its bond market. There is a natural reflexive relationship and tension in between them. And the tension being the way a company or a country, there's a lot of debate around this to oversimplify funds itself is to issue bonds. And uh, that, and that allows basically the government to like spend money into existence and People argue about the order of that. They say they spend money and then they issue the bonds, whatever. It doesn't really matter. That's the basic relationship. And then what ultimately ends up happening sometimes is country will sell bonds to a bunch of other entities that hold those things like money. And actually, most people that are monetary scholars would argue it's very difficult to even define what money is. Money is different things to different people. When corporations say they have money on their balance sheet, they're not talking US dollars, they're talking about bonds, they're talking about yield bearing money. So I think there's a distinction between yield bearing and non yield bearing money. Um, but there's a tension in that. And this is something the US is probably gonna have to face eventually, we have so, so many bonds outstanding that people are going to say we can never repay our debt. Well, we can repay the debt. But what we ultimately have to do is print more money to do that. 
And so you have to, the US will probably have to make a decision at one point, do we prioritize the bond market or our currency market? And countries always, always, always prioritize the bond market. So I guess I understand that from the perspective of ETH there, but I think that is the ultimate idea as they see this tension in between the derivative, in this case, Steeth and ETH itself, and they want to prioritize ETH. But I think inevitably what's going to happen is that people are going to want to stake. Um, keeping the issuance rate low, I think, has the risk of actually doing the opposite of what people want, which is they're not going to stake less because you offer less yield. They're going to go out on the risk spectrum and do things like restaking and find ways to opt into additional incremental yield. But Miles, I'm not actually sure, like I'm front running our episode that's coming out on Tuesday, but I do think an asset that these networks have outside of the security of its block space is this group of validators that they, people that, and entities that they've convinced to do work on Ethereum's behalf and to receive rewards denominated in Ethereum. And you're starting to see this with both Eigenlayer and Pepsi. But if you were to ask validators to do more things, you could do, you could build a lot more cool, very decentralized products. So I don't know. You're right. Maybe that's not necessarily uh, accretive to the price of ETH, the asset, but you could get a lot of cool stuff if you readjusted your definition of what a validator is supposed to do. And all of that cool stuff that's made possible by not being beholden to the constraints of literally building like as a, a roll-up or on L1, right? But still being within the Ethereum ecosystem um, and, and providing value back to the Ethereum ecosystem. I think the whole point of Eigenlayer, their, their main thesis is that that does ultimately like grow the pie much more than you could if... First of all, everything was, you know, horizontally scaled, completely separate like Cosmos, or if everything was, you know, basically constrained into one sort of execution environment, like, you know, we see Solana today. Um, I, I think that it's, you know, there uh, obviously the downside risks are of any sort of um, debt rehypothecation are, are significant. I do think, you know, when, if and when eigenlayer is used irresponsibly, like it will lead to a blow up. But I do think, you know, net net, it's going to be very, very positive. Um, and we'll see. I mean, I think eigenlayer is definitely more of this sort of tech crypto sort of uh, um, mindset, right? It's like, okay, we're constrained by Ethereum, but we love Ethereum, the asset. It's got amazing qualities. This this huge asset of a of a their supply side, right? It's the most decentralized in the world. Let's find, let's build things that wouldn't be possible without necessarily like adding all these new trust assumptions. Um, that has the downstream impact of raising the staking rate, you know, significantly, right? Because it will drive demand for staking, which in turn, it makes the, I guess, the the premium of liquidity, like, you know, less significant versus um, staked ETH. And in fact, you could imagine staked ETH um, going the far more, you know, popular way to have exposure to ETH. Um, so there, there probably is a tension there. And this is just another example of that, like tension playing out right now. Yeah. Yeah. I can certainly see why, you know, I looked this up at one point. I looked this up actually, you know what? There is a great interview from a guy 
Sir Paul Tucker he used to be a Bank of England uh, head of head of the Bank of England's central bank. And he described the monetary policy of when he was forget if he was the head of it or like the vice, you know, the chairman type thing. But he described it as, you know, because I've looked at this is like a, a an issue that a lot of people talk about that got them into Bitcoin. Why do we have so much debt? And he described it not in terms of really managing the finances of a country, but the relative demand of yield bearing versus non yield bearing money. And he said, there's just so much more demand for yield bearing money than non yield bearing money. And probably, yeah, that would probably be similar to <laughs> probably be similar in this case. So who knows? I agree. I agree. Well, well, I think um, it will be interesting to see how they handle this over the next couple of years. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share something that Blockworks has been cooking up for these last couple of months. March of this coming year in London, Blockworks is hosting DAS London, the largest institutionally focused conference in all of crypto. We are gathering 1,200 of the world's largest asset managers. So think TradFi macro funds, crypto native funds, big allocators, and financial institutions. So banks, payment processors, etc. all in one spot. It's very rare to get the likes of Goldman, JP Morgan, Point72, whatever, all in one room so you can know what the big money is doing. We're diving into the themes that they care about. So we're talking about the intersection of macro and crypto, where we are in the cycle, real-world assets, so everything from stable coins to on-chain treasuries to tokenized assets. It's going to be a blast. But the other reason you really want to go is London, baby. Center of the world at one point. You got pub culture, you got fish and chips, great beer. It's going to be a blast. So because you're such great listeners to Bell Curve, there's a code BELL20 that's going to get you 20% off. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. It'll take you right over to the home page you'll see all of our speakers and use bell 20 for 20 percent off ticket prices are going up soon make sure you go use that code i will see you in sunny london town in march let me ask you this miles one more question i i had a, a good back and forth on this with uh victor bunin on twitter uh you know because there, there actually there was a long discussion i think it was sam hart and david and then there was some back and forth about whether or not cosm or adam was a monetary asset uh versus compared to eth and, um, you know, people always knock Adam for not being a monetary asset. And for some reason, ETH is. But I'm not actually 100% sure why that is so much. And if, and if the idea for ETH is to be a monetary asset, is the assumption that all these rollups are going to want to use ETH as their native currency? Or do you think it's more likely that they'll try to use their own native token as their currency. So, you know, at a, Cosmos, their explicit design is that anyone can be fully sovereign. I, we've talked about this. I think Cosmos has gone probably too far down that route or is just too ahead of their time a little bit. Uh, but I do think a lot of people are assuming that the rollups are going to want to use ETH as a currency. And okay, Base is doing that because of regulatory reasons, most likely. But I think a lot of these other rollups, don't you think they're going to want to use their own native token? Or how do you see that playing out? Hmm. I think I don't think that's there's going to be one dominant model. I, I actually, if anything, I think for a long time it will be majority ETH. Uh, you can still have your own token. All that ETH revenue from sequencer profits, whatever that accrues to the you know your treasury, and at some point, if once you're large enough, you start paying out you know real yield ETH to your token holders. That's a pretty good outcome. Um, I think maybe just to touch on Adam versus ETH, just the clear difference is like, 
you need Ethereum. You need to hold ETH to interact with gaps on Ethereum. You need to hold ETH to onboard to Ethereum. It's very hard to onboard, you know, uh, to Ethereum without having any ETH. I think it's probably going to change over the next couple of years. But um, at the very least, even if the rollups like abstract that all away, they need to hold ETH, right, to post data. Um, Adam, in you know, optimizing for sovereignty, uh, while it's still like the most held, widely held asset in Cosmos, you know, um, you can see like the uh, the latest projects that are, that arrived in, in Cosmos have really no interest in like associating with Adam um, because that's not why they chose Cosmos in the first place. Um, and so I do think like I would call it that distinction. I don't know to what extent, you know, necessarily it's the utility of ETH that has really grown the moneyness versus I'd say like their early stage beginnings as everything being you know, on one chain, I guess those are kind of the same thing. You need ETH, right? Versus like just the memetic sort of value and, and momentum that both of them had. Um, yeah. So yeah. that's a little backwards looking, I think, because I, I'm making the assumption at least that most rollups are not going to pay for. I, so actually, so is your assumption that most rollups will use their own token as gas, right? Yes. I think they're. Mo I think the vast majority are going to try. Uh, one, one other, one other, uh, maybe subtle, but I think important difference between Atom and ETH is that there's token governance in Atom, and that has led to slightly different ideas, like redirecting uh, some funds, like the community fund. Right, that's not something that exists in in ETH. Although I guess you have the EF, but you do have the ICF. Anyway, it doesn't. There's a, there is a difference between the. I think the governance aspect of it as well. Oh, huge. Yeah. Um, but I, I, to, I, I also think it's going to be a slightly more nuanced thing. My, my guess would be though, is that most, I just try to put myself in the situation of one of these rollups. And I think if you, I'm assuming I'm, you know, a mid to high tier rollup here, because I believe in myself <laughs> and, uh, I would try to use my own token as gas before I, and I know you can do restake security and maybe that's the, I think the end state is probably that all of these tokens try for optimize for sovereignty, but eventually they're going to end up having to have some form of reserves. Sure. Right. Sure. sure. But yeah. can I give, can I give the, the counter argument um, or yeah. like a word of caution here? I mean, let's think about the, so the upsides of using your own token for gas is that it provides uh, there's utility, right? There's a, mm -hmm. like, you actually have to hold some of this, right? Um, and there's, uh, I, like, I don't think, actually think that has anything to do with staking, right? Um, mm. You could have, you could have staking as part of that too, but that's just, you know, kind of continuing the sort of uh, mapping over of L1 tokens. And that's, I think, doesn't really make a difference. Um, so the trade-offs are, uh, I think three things come to mind. One is uh, onboarding friction. So if you want to go after, you know, if you're building on Ethereum, part of that decision is because Ethereum offers a great distribution channel, right? And now you're making people who will hold ETH go, you know, maybe buy another, buy your asset, right? Which maybe that hurts your funnel me metrics to some degree. Um, so that's number number one. Number two is the economics get really complicated where you need to hold at least seven days worth of ETH 
for your on L1 to pay for data posting fees, basically your sequencer ops, right? Um, and you are then having to gauge that against the price of your token. Um, and if you want to keep the price of your token flat and the price of ETH moves, now you're dealing with potentially a shortfall. Not or you know if the to if the price of ETH stays flat and you keep your token flat, your gas price is flat, but your token goes up. Now users could be paying five dollars a transaction, right? So like it just gets complicated from an economic standpoint. Does it does it change your mind if most of these rollups don't end up posting DA to Ethereum? Um, no, because then if anything, you have like uh, you, you, you might have even more complexity where you have to like hmm. hold some ETH, some Tia, but then you're con you're you're converting your token into those two <laughs> cost buckets, like. Oh, that's actually, and then, and then, that's a I good guess, point. Then the, the last thing I would say is like, you don't want gas revenue, like to be a big, uh, I would say revenue driver in the long run. Um, standard transactions are going to be driven as close to zero as possible. Or if you don't, then you're going to get undercut. Now, I think there's probably a, you know one cent versus like fractions of a cent. doesn't really matter um, as much as people might think. Um, that's number, that's the first half of that you with a significant portion of revenue could be high value block space though. Right? Like, so mm. if you have a proposer builder separation of some kind, or you're auctioning off the highest value block space that people are actually willing to pay for it, like it's not a, it's not a drag on users. It's actually, you know, pure profit for them. And so they're willing to give you a piece of that profit. That all becomes much more complicated when you've got, especially like these shared you know, something like suave, right? Where everybody's trying to price the opportunity. Um, and you have maybe like, you know, one auction shared auction for multiple rollups that's priced in ETH, but then, you know, you're going to have to pay for that block space and uh, whatever rollup token is. And so if you want like a really uh, competitive searcher sort of environment that is, you know, paying you and, and paying you as much as they, you know, possibly are willing to pay for that block space minus some profit for themselves. Um, the more complexity you add to that, the more like the less they're willing to pay because that adds risk to their, to their like, you know, P and L as well. Um, those would be like why I think, I think there'll be a couple of like the big, big general purpose ones that try this super interested to see how it goes. Um, but it does feel amazing that you could, you don't, you know, you can have a token or you don't, or you can't have, or it doesn't really matter. Like you could be base and not have a token and still be making a ton of revenue in ETH, right? Or you could be, um, you know, have some token, but still just charge ETH as your, as your base fee. Um, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, token holders, what are they like? What is the, for any sort of asset, like a great outcome is, is getting that capital returned to them. Um, and having that capital returned to them in the asset that they're likely going to, you know, if it's ETH, they're not going to, they'll get like, you know, X token dividends and sell that back to ETH probably anyways. Um, so I do see like, uh, obviously it's an ETH's best interest to be pointing out like all of these like downsides, but once you can really start thinking about it, um, I, I think, I think the, it's one thing to say, okay, users can pay in USDC and ETH or like whatever they want. 
Um, it's another thing to like force a token on them, but I know there will be many, many that do. <laughs> I think that's, sorry, the point that I was trying to make is that they will try to, but yeah. you are convincing me. First of all, you're convincing me that it's not going to work faster than I probably thought it wasn't going to work. Although in a bull market, these token prices will probably go up more than ETH, so yeah. it'll work for them, the yeah. foreign exchange risk that they're essentially taking on. But this also explains why Cosmos is, God, Cosmos just so ahead of its time on all these. That explains the sort of, let's say describe it, the localizing the unit of account to, um, because the, the, this is the argument I was trying to make the other day, like the, the onboarding flow today, I think of most users has been when there were fewer assets and this environment was less complex. And actually, I still think this is going to be for a, lo- a while, how most people get onboarded to crypto on a centralized exchange, you buy Bitcoin or Ethereum or Solana or Atom or whatever. Okay. Then it realistically takes how long? Two years, maybe I like, it depends on what stage you get in in the cycle. I got in in a bear market. It took me longer than probably you did to take your assets off the exchange, to get a wallet, to start doing things on chain. And so I'm from the, I, I'm sort of making the assumption that many users are going to the first, their first foray into this space is going to be to buy a major L1 token and then to go from the L1 into other things as opposed to something like USDC. But that assumption might change within the context of layer twos. Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't do that. Here, here's the the longer term the longer term pushback though that I would have on you for what you just described is the benefit that you have of having your own token is again something that Cosmos has just been dead right on since the beginning is the pull of sovereignty. And I do think on a long enough time horizon that ends up trumping a lot of other things. And it, dealing with complexity whatever you know countries have shown that they're willing to do that in order to have their own control and people will actually accept people companies whatever they will actually accept objectively worse circumstances to have control over their own destiny yeah i would say though like having your own token doesn't necessarily have to equal you know that is the gas token um that's a good point i mean in some ways yes in some ways no like um with Cosmos, you can take from the user's perspective, you can use any token. Um, Osmosis will just, you know, swap that back to Osmo on the back end. Um, and yeah, I, I think that that um, it, it gets so complicated so fast. I don't think I don't think people like jumping around Cosmos from token to token. I guess in the sovereignty piece, I'd say it's really more about like the uh, technical architecture and like where how you choose to build your rollup that gives you you know, more sovereignty or less, um, or if it's your own chain, then tons more sovereignty um, versus your choice of like what the token itself does. Um, So one, you know, one thing I know, you know, in much more granular detail than me is the adverse selection problem with shared security and with basically the really high quality projects in somewhere like Cosmos, they don't need to rely on something like 
the uh, you know the the hub, but sometimes they do anyway for like this kind of alignment, um, this kind of alignment reason. And I do wonder if that same dynamic applies to ETH. I was just sitting here wondering to myself, like as an interesting hypothetical, if Arbitrum decided tomorrow to become its own layer one, what would that look like? Would it be that hard for them to recruit at this point their own set of validators? No. Not at all. Not at all. I think Sovereign Rollups on Celestia, although, you know, it's always a good amount out, strike an, an interesting balance of those two things, right? Um, you do have this token that, you know, you are kind of everybody is unified under and you need to hold in some capacity, whether that's making your users use it for gas or at least you you know, swapping that on the back end. Um, but they do strike that middle ground of not having to, you know, uh, they're not beholden to the rules of the the L1 that they're posting DA to, right? They can, they have the sovereignty to make their own ordering rules and things like that. Um, so I think this, yeah, this this whole spectrum will will, will kind of come into shape. Um, and it'll be very interesting to see how the role of the token, you know, evolves once we do something like, you know, have a decentralized or at least a um, a distributed whitelisted sequencer set that maybe they need have some collateral posting needs, right? Or there could be more types of slashing involved as these rollups kind of evolve their own um, roadmaps, whether that's provers or, you know, uh, sequencers, it's all very inning one. Um, and so there's probably more to be done. I just don't know if the gas token is the only or best use of it. You might be entirely right. And I, and I'm, I'm after this, I think you've changed my mind much more bullish on the idea of first time ever. (laughs) (laughs) That's not true. You've influenced my thinking a lot. And I, uh, yeah, I, I just, to to sum this up, because I, I want to conclude here talking about the, the stride, uh, liquid staking proposal that went live on the, the, uh, Celestia forum. The, the last thing that I just want to say is I, I just, I really do think that people have flipped way too hard on Ethereum. Like they, I kind of think they got the model right and they're still in pole position, no matter what this, this narrative says. And if it feels like they're struggling with things or it feels disjointed, I think that's coming for everyone and you can already see it in Cosmos and it probably doesn't matter that much your design. Everyone's going to have to deal with this eventually. So I don't know. I go into the new year optimistic. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Um, Yeah. Like it's a a product of the maturity of the project, um, the amount at stake. And uh, there is probably a little bit more of a monetary versus tech sort of divide, I think in in Ethereum than, um, than other ecosystems that, you know, it actually raises a lot more debate in terms of what you should be optimizing for in the roadmap. Um, you know, can't just like, it's not like just like totally comes out and says, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll fix things when they need to be fixed. Uh, if there's something that can make this go faster, uh, we'll probably add it and, uh, yeah, we'll go from there. Um, I think it's, it's a lot, a lot more straightforward, but yeah. Let's talk, let's just get close here discussing. So there's a big, there's a big proposal from called mutual friend of the, of the pod, uh, stride. Um, so Aiden and team over there put together a, a very thoughtful proposal about liquid staking on 
Celestia. And Celestia, you know, it's it's a sim- similarly to I we we saw this a little bit. We had Aiden on actually to talk about the liquid sticking module over in Cosmos Land. Obviously, very different architecture, but they sort of had the benefit of looking at how liquid staking played out on Ethereum and and uh, Solana, I guess, in a sense, and deciding like, hey, how do we want it to play out here? And now Celestia is really building this from from scratch. And they are incorporating a lot of data points that chains before them didn't necessarily have. So can you can you kind of walk us through the the highlights, Miles, of what what this proposal? So I would say like if, if you're interested in liquid staking, I highly recommend taking a look at this proposal because I think it um, it's one of the best jobs I've seen at really laying out the spectrum of different, uh, I would say, liquid staking models, um, even outside the context of Celestia. And then thinking about, OK, within the context of Celestia, we have a, an L1 that does not have an execution environment. What are the models that are possible? And then what can we do today? And then what can we build towards as the the, the dream end game, right? Um, and to give some some more context, the uh, normal way, or I'd say the way that um, liquid staking typically works in um, in Cosmos is using something called the, a component of IBC called interchain accounts. Uh, it's where you can basically use the IBC protocol to open and control accounts on other chains. Uh, so this is the way that you deposit to stride, but then they can stake your assets on another chain. Um, and your assets that are sitting on stride really inherit like the full security of the stride validator set or like the atom validator set. Um, that is not part of the initial implementation of Celestia. You know, this is a, a, a project that is um, trying to be as minimalist as possible to its core use case, which is you know, a data publication and retrievability for rollups. Um, and anything added to it really is, is a huge debate. Um, that's maybe anything added to it that's outside of that core sort of value prop, right? Or could potentially take away from that is, is something that's um, in general. Kind of like cautious. how Solana is with anything that extends the block time or reduces latency. Or, or uh, increases Bitcoin, latency. Or Bitcoin with, you know, a lot a lot of like, anything. There's no smart contracts. We can draw that compar- uh, parallel to Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Um, and so Stride's coming out and saying, okay, here's the, you know, landscape. Here's the design space of what's possible. Um, here's why we think an ICA-based solution, uh, you know, the one we offer today to other Cosmos chains is currently one, like safe to add, to Celestia to a much better interim solution than other solutions that are, you know, don't basically have any form of any form of slashing. It's not, you know, uh, basically a very, very, very small subset of, of the validator set. So basically, a you know, nine, nine person multi-sig. Um, here's why we think we should implement ICA for this in- interim solution. But by the way, we've been talking to you know some of the leading builders and, and thinkers within the Celestia ecosystem, and we've been looking at Celestia's own roadmap, and then you know backing into what we think is the liquid staking endgame um, for Celestia. What could that look like? Um, and that's where you know they get into some some future looking, um, forward looking uh, you know designs that would leverage um, Snarks once Snark accounts are implemented on. Um, on Celestia in probably 12, 12, 18 months, who knows? Um, 
and as well as ZK IPC. And, you know, don't necessarily need to dig into the details of this, but um, the goals here are really interesting to think about too. It's, you know, in a perfect world, you want your liquid staking protocol to come as close as possible to inheriting, you know, the same security properties as the base L1 to mitigate that sort of principal agent problem, right? Mm. Um, but at the same time, enshrining an LST, which is like the literal way of doing that, leads you to the delegation problem, which is, okay, so we solved the safety issues with this LST, but now we have to actually be opinionated of how the validator set mm. looks like. If we're assuming this LST, you know, that is going to become very popular, then we're now having a large influence over the makeup of our set by deciding who gets delegated to and who doesn't. Um, that said, you know, so there's that question, right? Um, and then if you think about like the possible solutions for that, obviously you could do something like pretty straightforward, like have, okay, a council of Celestia ecosystem, you know, uh, participants that are very aligned with the, you know, long-term vision of Celestia and have them do some sort of, you know, selection, maybe you do dual governance. So we brought up like ideas from uh, a lot of what you see with Lido doing right now to, to, you know, appease like ETH holders or Steeth holders, um, you know, in, in some way, right. Which is just adding checks and balances that let um, mitigate governance attacks of the actual third party liquid staking protocol by letting the Steve holders veto certain types of proposals. Um, and Celestia is very, very unique. Um, Celestia is like Ethereum in that it is you know, very uh, opposed to token holder governance uh, in, in, in general. Um, you know, if, so maybe just quickly, Stride team followed up today with a Celestia improvement proposal. Um, this, if it was a normal Cosmos chain, would just go to a governance vote to upgrade the chain. But Celestia handles chain upgrades much more uh, closely to how Ethereum does, which is largely off-chain, you know, rough social consensus-based uh, decision-making. And so, you know, I think in line with that, uh, if you're if you if you care about those values and you want to uphold those values to something um, and apply them to something as close to the metal as liquid staking, uh, then you would want to err away from any sort of council or like token based selection of delegation. Um, at the same time, okay, so what's the obvious answer to that? It's copy staking. So just anything that goes into stride, just delegate it in the same proportions that the current you know represents the, that reflects the current makeup of the set. This is also problematic. This does not lead to, this does not allow the, you know, liquid staking protocol to be a healthy driving force of centralization. Even, you know, that's, I, you, you may not like being opinionated, but if you end up delegating a ton of LST, you know, deposits to some fund with a white labeled validator that has a hundred percent commission that's already in the top 10 validators, that's a terrible outcome. Um, in fact, this I, is, you're missing an opportunity, right? So I'll pause there because I've been rambling for a while. I, no, no, no. It's You're just digging into a point where, again, we talked about this during the liquid staking season, but to underline one of the, one of the issues with having delegation in protocol and a lot of proof of stake networks that have this look like is a very top-heavy validator set because of how users tend to behave, right? When as soon as someone gets a lead, it's like, well, I'm going to stake with a top validator. So 
we've talked a little bit about, and I think John Charbonneau has done a good job of giving the example of how these outside staking pools can actually be, if they have the right aligned values, forces of decentralization for the network, because they have the opportunity to actually rebalance the validator set to something that looks more decentralized than if you left validator selection purely to market forces. Yeah, totally. And not even just like the most popular validators and giving some love to like, you know, the more grassroots validators that are equally performant, but at the bottom of the set, not big brand names. It's, you know, there's literally like funds in this validator set that should not be receiving external delegations. That was never their, you know, intention of setting up a, a, a validator, right? It was, it was just a house, their own, their own like uh, TIA assets. So That'd be a that'd be a very bad outcome for the both the health of Celestia by giving those delegating more to those app, like validators as well as the product because all that yield doesn't go to the it's 100 commission so there's it's going to be an interesting needle of thread I just would say like this is a um, among the most like advanced thinking I've I've seen um, on you know liquid staking protocol design. Um, so I'm, you know, constantly impressed with the Stride team for for pushing forward a lot of the the big concepts uh, in liquid staking, not just in Cosmos but broadly um, with things like the liquid staking module, which was really interesting. And now, you know, looking at something like, okay, how could um, we build this as a roll up in the most trust minimized fashion? How do we have governance and processes aligned to that sort of philosophy and those objectives that we're trying to do? Um, yeah, I'm very excited to see what will come. Yeah, I agree. We should also probably disclose Reverie is an investor in Stride, and actually, I am personally personally an investor in Stride as well. But the reason for that is because the, you know just how much work they've done, um, you know, in the last you know year or so, and yeah, just an incredible team, and you know, definitely be. Um, I think they've got a bright future on uh, Celestia, hopefully. So great to see that from from Aiden and Co. and. Uh, I think Miles, we can wrap it there. We, uh, what did we have? Yeah, I think that's that was a good. Spent a lot of time what, on. I don't Ethereum. know what we're gonna name this episode because we, there's a little really yeah. like a topic. But it's a lot of I good know. stuff. Hopefully, you know, uh, I we, it was mostly ETH based, and I think Ethereum in 2024 or something like that. I don't know the bull and bear case for ETH. I, I think it was mostly bull, but um, I don't know. I'll come up with something, but. We will we'll rely on our crack team uh, here of, <laughs> of uh, producers. Um, exactly. So, I Miles, this was a fun one, buddy. I yep. will. Uh, I will see you soon. It's awesome. Oh, and we'll plug uh, for for folks. We we are going to plug our episode uh, uh, that's coming live on Tuesday. Um, it's a surprise, but big big episode coming up. Definitely tune in for that one. That's going to be yeah. that one's going to be a lot of fun. It's been a long yeah. time in the making. So yeah, exactly. Should be good. All right, man. Yeah. Sounds right, good. See ya. Cheers.